This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr dot org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson, and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition in WS 754 for Sunday, August 6, 2023. On WaveScan today. The BBC Singapore Relay closes down. Part 3 of Jonathan Marks' conversation with Dr. Graham Mitten of the BBC World Service Audience Research. And our Indian DX report. Well, two weeks ago here in Wavescan, we played some audio recordings made by Jost Jacob in India of the final transmissions from the BBC Far Eastern Relay site at Kranji in Singapore. So today we thought it only fitting that we should reflect once more on that transmitter site, which closed on July 15, 2023. Here's Ray Robinson in Los Angeles. Thanks, Jeff. The BBC's association with Singapore went all the way back to 1937, when the city was the capital of the British colony of Malaya. It was at Caldicott Hill in Singapore on March the 1st of that year that a new studio and transmitter facility was officially opened to provide better service to the BBC's growing audience in the Far East. During the Second World War, the Japanese built another transmitter site at Jurong, Singapore, and after the war, both the Caldicott Hill and the Jurong sites were returned to British administration. But the BBC knew that neither site could accommodate their plans for expansion. Caldicott Hill just wasn't large enough, and there were plans to construct a new international airport on land close to the Jurong site. The tall antenna towers they desired would, of course, have been a dangerous hazard for aircraft. So, in July 1947, the BBC found another suitable location on a 450-acre site at Tabrau, just across the Johor Strait on the Malay Peninsula, about 12 miles from Jurong. They did use the Jurong site for a short period in 1948, but then temporarily transferred operations to the Ekala site in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, while the facility at Tabrau was being constructed. The first transmitter at Tabrau was activated in December 1950, and the second a month later in January 1951. Full transfer of all services from Ekala to Tabrau occurred in May 1951. However, the British colony of Malaya became the independent country of Malaysia in 1957, without the territory of Singapore. And when in the 1970s the term of the lease for the Tabrau site was coming to an end, the central government in Kuala Lumpur declined to renew it. So another move was necessary. Various locations were considered, including Brunei on the island of Borneo and Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean. 
But eventually, in 1976, after successful negotiations with the island city-state of Singapore, which had itself become an independent republic in 1965, the BBC announced that a new site at Kranji had been chosen. Kranji is on the northwestern coast of Singapore Island, and at the time it was just four acres of swampy landfill. During early construction, 800 truckloads of soil were dumped onto the site to raise the overall land level by three feet. But even with that, the main two-storey transmitter building, which was of the same design as the one at Wooferton in the UK, had to be built on concrete piles, and some of the antenna towers still had to be located in the shallow waters of a tidal ocean area. Fortunately, the Kuala Lumpur authorities did extend the lease at Tibral for a few years while the Kranji station was being built, and all eight of the newish transmitters currently in use at Tibral were moved consecutively to Kranji. The first tests from Kranji were heard in February 1978, and the Tabrao station was finally closed in May of the following year, 1979, after 30 years of service. Initially, programme relays were by shortwave from England on 17790 kHz, but in August 1983, relays via satellite were introduced, providing much better quality. The Cranchy station eventually contained five 100 kilowatt and five 250 kilowatt transmitters feeding 22 antenna systems, mainly reversible curtains, which were capable of providing excellent coverage to all areas of Asia. The BBC also operates a transmitter on 88.9 MHz FM in the centre of the island, carrying the BBC World Service for the local population, and we understand this service will continue. Operation of the BBC's overseas relay stations was privatised in 2003, with Merlin Communications taking over the operation of the BBC Far Eastern Relay Station in Singapore. Merlin subsequently became VT Merlin, then VT Communications, then Babcock, and eventually Encompass Digital Media. But through all those transitions, the BBC has always retained ownership of the station itself. Many BBC language services have been carried by the relay station at Cranji, as well as relays on behalf of other international broadcasters such as NHK Tokyo, Radio Canada International, Radio Netherlands, Deutsche Welle and Radio Australia. However, after cutbacks to shortwave broadcasts in recent years, it has been estimated that the Cranji site was now only being used at 15% of its capacity. The BBC services still being broadcast at the time of the closure of the site last month were those in Burmese, Korean and Dari and Pashto for Afghanistan, as well as world service programming in English, an hour of which was beamed daily in the DRM mode towards India. The need for development space in Singapore has grown ever more acute over the years, and the government there announced some time back that when the current lease for the Cranji site expired, it would not be renewed. And thus the BBC Far Eastern Relay Station at Cranji, Singapore, closed its final transmission at midnight UTC on Saturday the 15th of July, which of course was Sunday the 16th in the target area. The station will now be dismantled. This is the BBC World Service. We're sad to tell you that on the 15th of July we are closing our Singapore transmitter and you'll no longer be able to hear us on this shortwave frequency. You can listen to the BBC World Service 24 hours a day at bbcworldservice.com. This is the BBC World Service, the world's radio station.
There's been speculation online that some of the foreign language services might be transferred to the Encompass Relay site in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, which also covers large parts of Asia, but thus far there's been no confirmation of that. The BBC World Service in English may still be heard on shortwave in many parts of Asia for at least a few hours per day via a relay transmitter site in Oman from 1200 to 1300 UTC on 15310 and 17790 kHz, and from 2200 to 2300 UTC on 5955 and 9690 kHz. Also via the relay site at Tinang in the Philippines, from 2200 to 2300 UTC on 9440 kHz, and from 2300 to midnight UTC on 9410 and 11825 kHz. During its 45 years of service, regular full-data QSL cards have been available from the BBC at its Cranji address, and additionally some QSL cards have been posted out from the BBC in London. Three different Singapore cards were known, each with a photograph in colour of the station itself. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Ray Robinson, from The Voice of Hope in Los Angeles. Last week, we presented part two of an interview with Dr. Graham Mitten, the former head of BBC World Service Audience Research. That interview was conducted by Jonathan Marks, former host of Radio Netherlands Media Network. Today, in part three of that conversation, Jonathan asks Graham Mitten about the development of overseas shortwave broadcasting to Africa. So you talk about the domestic use of shortwave. So when when do you really see the uh, the growth of international broadcasting? And I'm talking about basically Europe and maybe uh, um, uh, North America wanting to address the African audience. And why did they do it? Well, they did it because they were afraid of what Moscow was doing and also what NASA was doing. With uh, don't forget, Radio Cairo was given h- huge amounts of money during the nineteen. 19- Late 50s and the early 60s to develop, bro- I mean, uh, Cairo started broadcasting in Yoruba and Hausern and Swahili and uh, in French, of course, uh, for the whole of Africa and English. Um, and they were worried about the influence of, of, uh, of Cairo and they were worried about the influence of Russia and, of course, Russian so-called satellite states, some of which broadcast also, like East Germany had broadcast in Swahili. And and there were other African, sorry, there were other Soviet client states, as they were called, uh, who did their own broadcasting effort to Africa. And if you look back at the, you know, copies of the World Radio TV handbook from the 1960s and 70s, you can see how extensive that was. So that so the BBC and the Voice of America uh, and their political and the political background, if you like, the British Foreign Office and the American State Department. The State Department had direct control over Voice America. The British Foreign Office did not have direct control over the BBC, but of course there was discussions and there was influence there. Because the they, BBC, could, they could decide which languages you were broadcasting. Well, they did. Yeah, the, 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 the Foreign Office did have the, the right to say you will broadcast in this language or not broadcast in that any longer. That, by the way, is no longer the case. Um, John Tuser changed that. We decided to take the initiative... And that is why, after John Tusser's, during and after John Tusser's time, the BBC usually took the initiative to make new languages and would, would inform the Foreign Office uh, and uh, uh, 
usually there usually came to an agreement on, on, on that. So the BBC took the initiative. For example, just to digress here for a bit, you don't mind, I hope. It was the BBC that decided to close the Japanese service. It did not, it was not justified by the, the size of, of the language, uh, the size of the audience. And so in that period, I can't remember if, if that was a, when we opened Ukrainian, but that was, it was that sort of period we decided to close down those languages which were not really needed or not used anymore uh, and to open others which did meet an audience need. So uh, maybe you could tell me a bit more about the work that you did in the BBC International Broadcasting Audience Research Department. We used to call it IBAR, is that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, and if I remember, you were actually in the building a short walk away from BBC World Service in Bush House, a place called Queen's House, yes. uh, which I think was famous for being the early headquarters of BBC English by radio. That's right. And it was also headquarters of BBC World Service publicity. And uh, the three departments were together in that building for several years, largely because Bush House had uh, over... Bush House didn't belong to the BBC. BBC was a tenant, and we gradually, when places became free, would 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 take over those. But when the, pre the World Service was growing, more more languages, more departments, and uh, the plan was to get everybody into Bush House, but it took quite a long time before we were able to. Uh, first of all, publicity moved, and then English by Radio, and then we moved to to Bush House. Uh, but that was in the late uh, the mid nineties. We were able to. Uh, yeah, well, when I, in our first meeting, which I think was uh, must have been in the early eighties, I remember you showing me around Queen's House. Wasn't it full of people answering letters in dozens of languages? <laughs> yes, that's right. We covered all the. There were, I think, in those days when you came, around forty-five languages. Uh, we had staff covering almost all of them. There were some where the number of letters we received were not really sufficient to justify uh, a person um, uh, or only very much a part-time kind of activity. But yes, we, used, we had a kind of formula whereby a thousand letters would count for a certain number of hours of work. And so we tried to match the numbers of letters we were receiving to the, the staffing load. By the way, we did... Uh, we did do a lot of letter handling, and that grew uh, in the in the target area countries. For example, we had an office in in Rangoon or Yangon, as it is now now known, but, um, where Burmese letters were were uh, dealt with mostly. Uh, and then we opened one in Nairobi. We opened one in in Nigeria. I can't remember. I think it was in Abuja, and we opened one in uh in in madras in in um what they now call chennai um in to, to cover some of the letters from from and also in delhi to cover to deal with some of the letters from those, those areas now in the 70s and 80s a lot of international broadcasters um would say that uh you know one letter was equivalent to i don't know a thousand or maybe ten thousand listeners. They were trying to work out the size of their audiences, and I, I seem to recall that you, you said that was absolute rubbish. It is absolute rubbish, and I'm afraid I once said so, in no uncertain terms, to the representative from Radio Peking or Radio Beijing at a 
at an international broadcasting conference in Vancouver. And uh, the chairman of the conference, Father Father Borgomeo of Radio Vatican, reprimanded me. He gave me a kind of verbal slap on the wrist for being so rude. In fact, all I did was to say that the gentleman from, from Radio P Beijing is, is talking nonsense, which he was. Uh, and he act because he actually said this is derived from the BBC because the BBC stated that one letter is equivalent and I can't even remember what the number was there is but I said to him it would be lovely if there were any such relationship but there is none and I proved it and I proved it many times by showing that the the putting the the estimated audience figures given from survey research actually asking people on the ground random at random if they are listeners to the different radio stations and you can compare that the, you can then project the numbers to the population you can then look at the number of letters you get and there is no relationship the number of letters nobody would believe me do you know the biggest mailbag in my time after english english would get hundred thousand letters a year in tamil was the second and tamil was the smallest language on the air why so many people write in tamil it's Tamil culture. The Tamils are immensely proud of their culture and their language and their poetry. And the fact that other people broadcast in Tamil is a big deal. Tamils get very, very, um, what's the word? But they're very proud of the fact that the BBC broadcasts in Tamil. Our language. Isn't this amazing? You know, it's that kind of thing. So they write and they love writing. And if you talk to other broadcasters who broadcast in Tamil, like some of the Christian broadcasters, FIBA Radio or Transworld Radio. You get the same story. We get loads of letters in Tamil. Whoops. We get loads of letters in Tamil. Why is that? I said, well, we have the same. And the only reason I can think of is this Tamil culture of pride in their language and wanting to exercise their, their skills in writing this. It is a beautiful language. There's no doubt about it. And, and, and the writing is lovely and, it, and, you know, it's culture and it's poetry and it's drama and so on. It are all beautiful. And the music... But because people write a letter doesn't necessarily mean to say they're listening to the radio. No, except, of course, when they write about what they've heard. So you, I mean, of course, a lot of letters, they just want to get souvenirs or they just want to get free gifts or whatever, which is what they get from some radio stations. We never really did that. Um, we we would allow, we would let departments do it. For example, Network Africa and the African Service had a great thing of offering gifts, but it was always connected with you need to do something for us and so they would be given if somebody wrote a story or wrote a recollection or sent in a tape of them singing or doing some poetry or something like that or this wonderful period when they did african proverbs they were absolutely brilliant um there's a shall i tell you one of the proverbs, the proverbs and 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 store and stories and the prize winner one year was was from Ang from somebody from angola sent in this story a, a bus was traveling across country, with, f fully loaded with people, and the bus um, veered all over the road and eventually crashed. And everybody uh, was killed. Uh, and then the, 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 the scene uh, changes to the, the pearly gates. And the driver was, was, was there at the pearly gates and immediately welcomed into heaven. The same uh, 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 bus had contained a priest, and the priest came to the same uh, 
position and was told, oh, you, you, you don't belong here, you don't belong, you, don't, you can't. But I'm a priest and you let this drunken, careless driver through. Yes, that's true. But every time he drove his bus, everybody on the bus would pray. When you spoke, everybody went to sleep or walked out. And so that was the end. And that was the prize winner. And these lovely stories. Of course, people. The BBC wanted people. By the way, there's another story I'll tell you now. It's not a one like that, but this is a story that I am convinced is true. The BBC and other broadcasters make huge use of, of uh, social media. And they think thereby they're more in touch with their audience. Well, maybe they are. But I, there was no, the, the beginnings of audience participation go back long before um, uh, online. And I am convinced that we were much more in touch with the audience when we allowed them to do their own stuff and send things in on cassette uh, or handwritten or hand-painted or drawn. I mean, they send pictures. You know, what do you do with pictures on the radio? But you could. there are ways of talking about pictures on the radio. Uh, radio is a wonderful medium for giving people a, in their mind's eye what something looks like. And people would write jokes, stories, you know, and interact. We had, we had the things, things like, here's a, here's a challenge on the African. I was on the African service, by the way, when I wasn't, went on to do audience research. I was in the African service. And one of the things we did was to ask listeners, what would you do if you were president for a day? Wonderful ideas came in. And, and the, crea the creativity of listeners is just amazing. That was Dr. Graham Mitten, former head of audience research at the BBC World Service, speaking with Jonathan Marks on media network Vintage Vault, which is available on the Internet. We'll continue with his interview with Graham Mitten on an upcoming edition of Wavescan. Now let's go to Yukiko Tsuji in Japan with her DX report for this month. Hello and welcome to the DX Report of the Month from Japan Shortwave Club, aided by Toshi Otake and I'm Yuki Kotsuji. We have several DX reports from our club members this week. Radio Taiwan International from Tamsui was heard on 11995 kHz on July 7th from 1700 to 1759 UTC in German. SIO rating was a 453. This was a special German broadcast from Tamsui transmitter site in northern Taiwan. ID was given at the 1700, then mailbag program, scientific explanation program, and Chinese pop music program were aired. KTWR Guam was heard on 11965 kHz on July 3rd, from the sign-on at 10.59 to the sign-off at 11.31 UTC. SIO rating was 454. It signed on with interval signal, followed by hope with God, creation moment, and grace notes. BBC World Service via Oman was heard on 21470 kHz on July 9th from 11.15 to the sign-off at 11.30 UTC in Pashto. SIO rating was 353. Drummer and a song were on the air. Radio Ergo via Davaya UAE was received on 21595 kHz on June 29th from 1240 to the sign off at 1259 UTC in Somali. SIO rating was a 453. 
Talk program by of male and female announcers was broadcast. Closing announcement and ID were given at 12.58. Adventist World Radio via Moosbrunn, Austria, was heard on 17725 kilohertz on July 1st from 14.09 to the sign-off at 14.30 UTC in Udu. SIO rating was 454. Talk program and hymn were aired. ID was given at 14.12. Bible voice broadcasting via Nauen, Germany, was heard on 17650 kHz on July 1st from 14.32 to the sign-off at 1500 UTC in English. SIO rating was 353. Talk program and hymn were on the air. ID was given at 14.59. Radio Exterior de España from Spain was received on 17855 kHz on July 8th from 15.15 to 15.35 UTC in Spanish. SIO rating was 2.52. Talk program was broadcast. VOA via Botswana was heard on 15730 kHz on July 1st from 13.18 to the sign-off at 13.59 UTC in Somali. SIO rating was 3.53, then down to 2.52. Talk program and local song were aired. ID was given at 13.57. WBCQ from Monticello, USA was heard on 9330 kHz on July 8th from 0935 to the sign-off at 0955 UTC in Spanish. SIO rating was 352. Talk program by two male announcers was on the air. ID was given at 0950. The music program started. Finally, Japan Showtime Club will issue the QSO cards for the correct reports on our segment of WebScan program. We are issuing QSO card by email to the report sent by email. Our address for your email report is jswcqsl at live.jp. I repeat, jswcqsl at live.jp. We continue to issue the printed QSO card by the same system as before. Your report should be addressed to jswc. P.O. Box 44, Kamakura, which is K-A-M-A-K-U-R-A, Postal Code 248-8691, Japan. One ILC or two U.S. dollars for return postage will be appreciated. For this edition of DX Report, we'd like to thank Mr. Yoshiaki Hayashi, Mr. Iwao Nagatani, Mr. Hirokazu Mitsumoto, Mr. Chiaki Shimada, and Mr. Kazuaki Oikawa for sharing the information with us. Thank you for listening, and please join us for our next edition of DX Report of Japan Showtube Club. Thank you, Yukiko. And we end WaveScan today with some traditional folk music from Singapore, celebrating Racial Harmony Day. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. 
Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week on Wayscan, the station from the wonderful Isle of Dreams in Florida. Our Japan DX report will be coming up as well. Wayscan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone. This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is bible at awr.org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. 